In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. On my first week among you, like five and a half years ago, I referenced a, a voice that stuck with me from a book that I've never read, but I've only heard one quote from it that gets quoted most often. And it's a, it's a quote that has everything to do with, how do you know what you choose to do in order to leave a, lead a meaningful life? Everybody makes choices that are on the basis of what they think is meaningful, but, but what should? Because you get all sorts of advice. Do I go to college? Do I learn to trade? Do I get married early, late, or never? Do I do this or that? And all of those assume something that's in the background. And so Alistair McIntyre, in a book he wrote over 40 years ago called After Virtue, he says this, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question, of what story or stories do I find myself a part? And what he means by story or stories there is a way of reality, the, the, the nature of things. This is the way. This is the, this is the character of, of, of all things that we might say is true and wise. That's the story he's referring to. And until you understand what that is, Look, you can dole out all the advice you want and you can hear all the advice you want, but unless they are aware of what story they're in, unless you are aware of what story you're in, all of that is well-intentioned but untethered. You have to know that story in order to know what you ought to do. That's important. That's prerequisite. We have been listening to a letter for a very long time that Paul, we believe, wrote to a bunch of fledgling churches in what was called Ephesus then. And the first half of the letter was all about the song of the gospel. That to know the gospel is to, is to know it like a song that you know and dear and it's always there and it lifts you up in your darkest hour and it, and it comes to your lips even in your brightest moment. That's what a song does. And that song ends up eliciting a dance of sort, which we have used as a metaphor for a kind of life. Well, inevitably, you would realize, you would think, that when you start talking about something that moves you so deeply and has so much expansive implications for life, that it's eventually going to get to some of the most basic and foundational relationships in life. For the next three Sundays, we're going to listen to what Paul has to say about how the gospel, what implications the gospel has for those relationships. This morning, it's about marriage. We're going to read a text that depending on where your point of view is either famous or infamous. And if you think, coming away from what you're hearing, that the primary question it is out to answer is, who's in charge? That's kind of like saying, the catcher in the rye is all about ducks. <laughs> it's in there, but is it mostly there? I don't know. We'll see. Let's talk about it. But the reason I bring up Alistair McIntyre here on the front end is that because before we ever talk about how does a marriage function, what is the pattern within it, you, we have to understand the story that marriage is in and the story that marriage is meant to tell. If we don't start there, I will argue that these words taken in isolation are a recipe for disaster. We have to hear the story in which it finds itself, in which it is retelling, in order to understand why is it being directed in that way. So we're going to consider marriage under two headings. What is the meaning of marriage? I.e., what is the story? And from that meaning, what is the matter of marriage? What's, how does it function? How does it operate? And things like that. Now, side note. Some of you, this may be your very first Sunday with us. 
<laughs> like, right? And that's great. And we welcome you here. And you're going to hear these words and you're going to think, what serendipity? What providence? I show up on Handmaid's Tale Sunday. Awesome. <laughs> he just said that. Look, I, I'm not here to apologize for anything that I'm about to say or others that you might hear from other people, but I will sympathize with the disadvantage that you're at in hearing this if this is your first week because you don't know me from a hole in the wall. You don't know my wife. You don't know my family. And you don't know us. And so it will be your natural instinct, hearing what you're hearing, to fill in a bunch of gaps in your knowledge, and I get that. And it's natural as breathing, and I don't fault you for it, but I will just say this. Would you resist the urge maybe to fill in gaps that you don't have any answers for? And then at the end, after you hear me flapping my gums for a long time, let's talk. Let's dialogue. I'm for real. I'm not just saying that. That's where we're going. The meaning of marriage and the matter of marriage. We're going to back up just a little bit into the passage we talked about last week, and then we'll go there. So if you'd be so humble as to stand, to listen, to focus your attention, we're going to Ephesians chapter 5. We'll start in verse 18. 18b for those of you keeping score. <laughs> but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the heart, to the Lord, with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can sit. Um, let's, let's be very clear here who these words are spoken by. Someone who, for all we know, and as we know, was never married. In fact, if you hear his words in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, if you cannot be married... Don't be married. If you are constitutionally capable of saying, I'm good with not being married, do that. He thinks that's preference because then your commitments in life are a little bit undivided in that way. And, and he is, of course, speaking on behalf of whom? Of Jesus himself, who appeared to Paul on his way to take out the church on the road to Damascus. And guess what? Jesus wasn't married either. And though he had wisdom for life about what it, how do we conceive of what marriage is, <laughs> um, Jesus was never married, and he also said there's not going to be any marriage after everything shakes out. Marriage is momentary. So you have to hear that so that for those of you who are in this room who are unmarried, so that you don't just click out, uh, please don't hear this 
attention or focus on marriage as if to say, tier one, tier two. No. It's not varsity JV. It's not better, lesser. It's just a different form, but we probably should talk about it given the propensity or given the number of people that go down that route. Okay? There's that. So, what are we talking about? The story, if you will, that we must reckon with before we ever talk about what do you do in marriage, what is the pattern of marriage, the story, we're leaping forward to what you heard there in verses 31 and 32. What did you hear in verses 31 and 32? You first of all heard a citation explicitly from Genesis chapter 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Genesis 2, verses 24 through 26. That's where it starts. And one chapter earlier in Genesis 1, it talks about where male and female dignity derive and arise from. It comes from being made in the image of God. Males are not made in the image of God and females are not. Neither are females made in the image of God or males are not. It's the same. And so he says, let us make man in our own image after our own likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And the first direction from that account of what comes to male and female, it's spoken to whom? It's spoken to them. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That's a direct citation from Genesis 2, such that when we get to Ephesians 5, Paul is pulling that out here. That's meant to be in the background of everything else that he says. That's where he's starting to plant his flag in a place that says, this is the story. This is my story. But he says that this story that originates in the first human couple coming together to be coupled in marriage, he says, this is a mystery. Why is it a mystery? Well, that a husband should leave his parents' place and lose the free rent? No, that's not the mystery, right? Or, or why would any woman would ever want to bond with any man? Ugh. Why, why, that's, what, is that the mystery? No. The mystery is that what occurs in the coupling of two a husband and a wife together, is, is more than a physical bond. It's more than a psychological bond. It's more than a bond of address. It's more than having a roof over your head, common roof over your head, or sharing a bed, or sharing a life, or sharing a story. It's that this thing, which defies words, can only be characterized in this mysterious way of putting it, they are one flesh. That there is something joined together that is more than meets the eye. And it is not reducible to any of those other ways of characterizing the nature of the bond. And so to say that a, a, a married couple is an arrangement that now allows them to be in the best position to be able to take vacations together, true statement. But that's kind of like looking at the Mona Lisa. Look at the Mona Lisa for just a second. In the Louvre, right? That's like saying the Mona Lisa, what is that? Well, that's canvas and paint. Yes, yes it is. Is that all it is? Of course not. That which occurs between a husband and a wife, Paul is reaching for words and he's reaching for what Genesis says and that Genesis says one flesh. Oh, oh, one flesh. What is that? I don't know, it's a mystery. And that's where Paul was only beginning to push us all and push those whom he's first writing to. Yes, it's a mystery. But then Paul as abruptly says, this is a mystery, but actually... 
Let me tell you about a mystery. Let me tell you a mystery. What I'm saying is that this refers to Christ in the church. That the marriage that we see first typified there in Genesis 2 is actually pointing to something. It is pointing to something greater than itself. It is pointing to what can only be characterized as a, as a union, as a marriage. That's why we cited John 3, 25 through 29, where John the Baptist refers to Jesus as the bridegroom, that there is a greater union that we are to understand here between Christ and the church. What we see in marriage is in some ways anticipating what we find now in what Jesus has done for the church. And it doesn't even stop there. Because if you look to later in Revelation, when it talks about the wedding supper of the Lamb, what is that all speaking of? It's talking about an even greater union. It's talking about the marriage of heaven and earth. As it stands now, all we can do right now is pray as Jesus prayed. That our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's two different storylines, and at some point, in the culmination of all those things, those two storylines merge. They're distinct, but they become as one. And so that which is typified in Adam and Eve becomes a a pattern, a model for what we see between Christ and the church, and that is actually pointing us to a greater union between the final union of heaven and earth. This is the story, folks. Here I've got a... Do a little, okay, everybody cinch up your seatbelt for just a second, right? Because this is going to get a little bumpy. There's a difference between what we'll say an analogy is and a type. And there's a word, okay. An analogy, uh, an analogy is kind of like, uh, Jesus would say, the kingdom of God is like this, right? He's making a comparison. Or in the Proverbs, um, a dog returns to his vomit as a fool returns to his folly. I mean, you'll remember that one, right? Um, I, I watched it happen this week. It was fabulous. And, oh, God, stop. Um, vivid. That's a metaphor. That's an analogy. And analogies work at some level, but you can't press them too far. You don't say it's all about that. That's an analogy. But there's a, a theological idea called a type in which that which we see at one moment is so full of meaning that it is anticipatory of it in another way at another time to remind us of something that God is meant to say in that first moment. The marriage that occurs between Adam and Eve, we start to hear a bell ringing when we see what Jesus has done for the church. And what we see Jesus doing for the church is meant to be a bell ringing for what will be the opening up, the merging of heaven and earth. That's the story. So, Just to be clear here, a type is something more profound than an analogy. It's not Paul saying, yeah, um, uh, Jesus is uh, like the the husband. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's the ticket. Yeah, Flanagan, that's right. Yeah, and the wife is like the uh, church. No, he's not reaching. He's not grasping. He's not looking for an analogy. He's saying there's something more profound going on here. And not to reckon with that story is to... Set yourself up for a fall when you get to the other part. That is the story. Now, right now, some of you are already hypoxic, which is for you pilots, that's a term for when you start to get to altitude and you lose oxygen. Uh, yeah, breathe. So it's time to pivot. That's the meaning of marriage. That, that which we saw in Genesis 2 
is anticipatory and resonant in what we see in Jesus' life for the church, which is itself pointing us to something that is going to come in time, the union of heaven and earth. That's the story. And that pattern, that model, is now trying to map itself onto how we are to think of marriage in Christ. The story helps to ground you into thinking about, so, what, so what, what do we do here? Look, everybody, okay, let's talk about patterns before we pivot. If you've ever married, if you ever want to be married, if you ever were married, guess what? You bring a pattern into marriage. There's no way around it. Either a pattern that you saw and you model after yourself, which you're not even thinking about in real time, or you were repulsed by a model that you saw, and therefore you avoid at all costs ever replicating what you saw. Everybody comes with a pattern. I came with a pattern. And it certainly didn't look like the pattern that we're about to talk about now. And I fail at it often. And we're not saved by the pattern. We're saved by Jesus. But now let's pivot. Let's talk about, so how does this look like in a real world in IRL, in real life. The running start to this passage that we chose was for a reason. We talked about last week, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? And we said that there were four participles, four features of what um, marks you as one who is filled with the Spirit. And the last of those features is that which is one, the, the church are those who mutually submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. There's the word, submit. It is first introduced to anybody that's listening in the context of what is our posture to one another simply by virtue of believing that we have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. What does that look like? It looks like submission to one another. Boom. And then in verse 22, the verb isn't there, wives submit to your husbands, because I think Paul means for us to borrow that verb from what we just heard. The only way to hear about the context of wives submitting to your husbands as Christ is head of the church is to understand it in the context of mutual submission to one another. And let me just say to you, if you believe that walking around in the body of Christ is about you walking up to saying, submit to me, submit to me, submit to me, submit to me, you submit to me, no, you submit to me, good luck with that. Good luck with that. More on that in a moment. What I want to do is before we get to the definition of what it is, I want to clear away a couple of misconceptions of what it is not. There's a, there's a wonderful stream of theological method out there that, that loves to say, if we're going to talk about God, it's like scaling a mountain. And before you can get to the top, you've got to get past a lot of things that he is not. And there's a whole stream of theological thought about that. So let me tell you about what it is not. What it doesn't mean. Submission doesn't mean Nothing. It doesn't mean nothing, to borrow a phrase. It's there. And so we can't just simply cast over it despite all of the horrors. Look, um, if you think it was sort of a coincidence that we invited the subcommittee of domestic abuse and sexual assault uh, to come up here, you think it was just sort of a coincidence. I hope you're not seeing it just as a coincidence, but purposeful. It doesn't mean nothing. If Paul's words have been found beautiful in other ways, then we have to at least ask the question, well, what about this? It doesn't mean nothing, but it also doesn't mean, if Jesus is the lens through which we see submission, that it is all about compelling, submit to me, submit to me. We're not doing that with each other, so it wouldn't be that. It's not about forcing or compelling. 
It's not about nothing. It's also not about being silenced or having your agency denied or even having an opinion. Look, Jesus wasn't married to his mom, you, um, but that moment in John chapter 2 when the wine gives out and mom says to Jesus, hey, they're out of wine. Woman, it's not my hour. They're out of wine. And then she kind of corners him by she looks at the attendants. Just, hey, do whatever he tells you. <laughs> Doesn't sound like agencies being truncated there. When Priscilla and Aquila in Acts chapter 18, they see Apollos, who's becoming a great preacher of the way, detect maybe some in need of seasoning and wisdom, it's Priscilla and Aquila that pull Apollos aside and say, hey, can we talk to you about what it means to walk more wisely and deeply in the way? Hmm. We need to clear away some misconceptions of what it isn't before we can get to a conception of what it is. But at some point, we've got to talk about what it is. And I thought it might be wise to consider another voice in hearing about what it is. So some of you may know Ann Kerhulis. Ann, come on up. This is the place. I thought, is this a check, check? No, no check. No check? It's in the mail. There we go. Is this working? Does this work? No. It's green. Yes. Donna, he was yes. the caller there? There it is. All right. And I've been talking this week about how to think through it and what is it. And we, we both have uh, talked about, you know, sometimes how these words feel, how they sound, what they look like. Uh, you probably have a common experience with me or a common experience. I remember the very first time anybody, I know where I was standing in Austin at the University of Texas during college when somebody said, do you know what Ephesians 5 says? And I looked at them and go, that's not in the Bible. <laughs> what are you talking about? Where does that come from? And you've had a maybe similar, can tell us a similar story of that vein about how you first hear these words and then where you go from there. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, so... This topic is a topic I actually really like talking about because I think that there's a lot to be reclaimed, uh, especially for women. So I actually had the opportunity to teach Ephesians 5 and um, kind of a, a Bible course going through the biblical sexual ethic when I was working in college ministry uh, with Harvard students, the birthplace of the Handmaid's Tale, ironically. Um, but uh, yes, yeah, so that made for some really good and challenging discussions there, um, but I really enjoyed teaching this passage. And then, but prior to that, I also, when I was in seminary, really um, kind of tried to tailor many different course papers to somehow looking at women in the Bible. Um, because I thought it was a really important topic. I was going into ministry, and um, I knew so many women, including myself, have had such negative experiences of abuse, um, manipulation, those kinds of things that I thought, well, is this good news for women, or is this actually really bad news for women? Um, and so I just kind of made a point to study this text, among some others, um, the text that kind of, when I first read them, made me see red and like, slam my Bible and throw it across the room, maybe. Um, but yeah, I think these texts are just oftentimes really hard to hear for women. And so, um, yeah, that's why I'm excited to talk to you about it now. So as you look at, at Paul's effort to ground this and um, give it meaning, uh, what, is, what do the words sound like to you? Yeah, um, I think when we think, I mean, the first verse, right, wives submit to your husbands, it can be kind of hard to even get past that first verse to read the rest of the passage. Um, and so I think when we are talking about this topic, 
we have to begin by doing some like reclaiming of the word submission because in our culture, submission is just always negative. I don't think there's any positive connotation for submission. It's linked to abuse and manipulation and oppression, really things that make us less human, um, things that are not good for us, right? Um, but in scripture, submission is actually a really different kind of word. And um, submission in the Bible, and even I think how God and Paul is using the word submission here, is something that leads to our flourishing. And so um, a few places that we see that, we see that in a lot of places, but one of the first places we see that is in Genesis, which you already referenced. Um, and we see that um, God makes man and woman equal, and both human and fully human, and they both actually are living in perfect submission to the will of the Father. Um, and so we see in creation that men and women are called to be submitters. Um, and when we live in submission to God's word, his commandments, um, his will, it actually brings about human flourishing. And when we stop living um, under his commandments, right, sin, when, when Adam and Eve fall and sin for the first time, it's really they stop submitting to God. And so not submitting to God's will actually leads to brokenness and sin. Um, so that's one place we see submission in scripture. But another place which I think is even more important and, and really beautiful and kind of the, the vehicle for which I think we understand this text is in Jesus. We see Jesus, um, even though he is completely God, right, he's equal in godness to the Father, um, he willingly submits his will to the Father um, throughout the entire, his whole ministry. He says, I come not to do my will, but to do the will of my Father um, nothing I do apart from what I hear the Father doing, right? So everything that he does is in submission to the Father's will. And so um, we see our, our Savior, right, who is equally God, um, just like women are equally human, equally charged to steward creation, um, Jesus willingly submits himself to the Father's will. Um, but the story doesn't end there, right? Jesus, as he does that, he actually, the Father then in turn, glorifies the Son and exalts Jesus and lifts him up and gives him the name above all names and gives him all authority in heaven and earth. And so um, Jesus in his submission then receives glory. And I think that's kind of the paradigm, like this dynamic relationship that we see between the Father and the Son. Uh, that's kind of what you're talking about, the type um, that we see in marriage, right? It's a dynamic um, relationship where wives are called to submit to husbands, but husbands in turn give themselves up for their wives. And so it's not a you know, lording over or um, a even one-sided kind of relationship, um, but it's, yeah, this dynamic thing. And so um, I guess to land on a definition of what submission is, um, I didn't come up with this, but I thought it was helpful. It's a voluntary yielding in love. So submission is a voluntary yielding in love. And um, I think that's been helpful for me because as you, we read 1 Corinthians 13 and right, what is love? It's, that's part of it, right? Saying you're more important than me. Um, other people, considering other people more important and um, not that husbands are more important than wives. Sorry, that came out wrong. But um, gotta be careful here. <laughs> so uh, I guess when I look at like Ephesians 5, the other practical thing that I would do when I was teaching students was I'd actually teach the passage from the bottom up and um, just knowing how I used to respond to this passage and how I imagined a lot of my students were responding, I'd start with what God commands husbands to do. Um, so husbands are called to lay down their lives for their wives just like Christ laid down his life 
for the church. And so, well, Jesus died for the church, right? So husbands are actually called to live in a manner in which they are dying to their wives, right? Um, loving their wives as their bodies. And, and so there's just such, a, again, this dynamic give and take in this relationship where um, when I think about a wife submitting to a husband who's actively giving himself up for her, putting her first, seeking her good, then submission doesn't seem so scary at that point. Submission just seems like something that, um, again, I can be doing in love as opposed to all of the negative connotations that we oftentimes associate with it. Thanks. So, uh, to be personal, what does it look like in real life? What is, what is this, what does all that brilliance uh, look like and uh, real life in the messy world of marriage. Yes, where we talk about pastors and wives' marriages. <laughs> um, God help us. Well, I think, I think the, to start with, we, it's important to remember that submission is going to look really different in every marriage because every marriage is comprised of two really unique people who have different personalities and gifts and strengths and weaknesses and um, all sorts of things, right? And I think when we try to kind of blanket statement, this is what submission is supposed to look like in marriage, um, that's when we make gender stereotypes and roles that are really unhelpful and not biblical, right? There's no prescription in, in Ephesians 5 that says this is exactly what all wives need to do all the time. No, I think this is actually one of the tasks of marriage is to figure out where are the places, right? There's going to be different hot spots for every single marriage of, hey, this is a place where I actively do not want to love my husband, well, I do not want to submit to him, um, and that might be a place that I need to be growing in. Um, I think another thing to keep in mind when it comes to being practical is just that submission is something that all Christians are called to. And so it's just one of our the kind of avenues of discipleship. It's um, we're all called to be living under the lordship of Christ and submitting to his will. And so when we think about then in a marriage context, really submission is just one more place that I'm living out Paul's other words, right? Let's say I've, I've been bought with a price. I'm no longer my own. Um, the life I live in my body, I live to the glory of God. And so submission then is just, in marriage, is really just one more place that we are growing in discipleship of following Jesus. Um, and so in our own marriage, I think one really practical fighting point, <laughs> potentially, place that we consistently uh, butt heads is, is that God has put two leaders in our marriage. And so, um, and that's not a mistake, right? I think we can read Ephesians 5 and say, well, and I guess for you to be married to Andrew means you need to just weed out that leadership that you have. But that's actually not what we're called to do, right? Um, but we do need to figure out how to, yeah, give and take. So when it comes to just making practical decisions of what are we going to do this weekend or how are we going to spend our money or, yeah, what are we, lots of just little basic decisions, right? It's kind of like the, the ebb and flow of normal daily life. We both want to decide oftentimes. And, and so that's just the place that we're constantly working, um, constantly thinking, how can I voluntarily yield because I love Andrew um, and do what he thinks we should do in whatever case? And that um, doesn't mean that he always gets his way, right? Because at the same time, he is actively saying, okay, how can I give myself up for Anne? Um, and, and when that happens, it's, it's really a dynamic and beautiful thing because it's imaging what we see happening in the relationship of the Trinity, right? Of Jesus giving himself up and the Father glorifying him, and, and that's what we're growing in, right? That's what we're kind of modeling. Um, and it's just, it's funny actually that the whole sermon series is called The Dance, or the, the, the song and the dance, like the, 
theologians call this kind of relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the paracretic dance, right? It's a dance that they have of love giving and self-sacrifice and glory giving. And we in marriage are really imitating that dance, right? It's a dynamic thing. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's one way it looks like in our marriage. Thank you. Thank her. When it comes to husbands, if you just look at the length of the passage, Paul has more to say to husbands than he does to wives, maybe because it takes twice as much effort to get their attention. <laughs> One can only infer. If I might address that, I think husbands need to reckon with two things, the first of which is before you ever think about a wife, you ought to think about what is the nature of a woman. Has anybody ever heard of a woman named Jackie Hill Perry? Raise your hand if you've heard of Jackie Hill Perry. If kids, if you went to the sexuality class or if the adults that went to the sexuality class uh, ever did that, then um, you heard Jackie Hill Perry, um, brilliant teacher, scholar, uh, author, uh, poet. And she has a lot to say about questions about what is a woman, what is a wife, and things like that. Um, the next best thing to having Jackie Hill Perry here is to hear a recitation of one of her works um, from someone that you know and someone that I know and love, um, who at their school, they have, to pick a, they have to pick something every March to prepare and perform in the way of a speech meet, and she picked this. So where is she? She's right there. So this is my daughter, and um, she's gonna share with you part of a poem that Jackie Hill Perry wrote, and I, I just, I, it's, it's maybe an odd thing to mention, but Jackie Hill Perry knows about abuse, and she knows about a lot of things. And so this is a poem that she made called... What is a Woman by Jackie Hill Perry. The other day, a woman as brown as the melanin in my daughter's eyes said behind the mic that she hated being a woman. She wanted to know what it meant to be one. I've often wondered the same, looking for the teaching of such to tell me about myself. We either learn by imitation or indoctrination. Mama and media can't help but train. Tutor us into carbon copies themselves. So then knowing who we are or what we should be is really understanding whose costumes we wear on most days, whose skeletons we switched with when Adam took his nap. I was told that a woman was independent, autonomous, that she needed not a man nor a moon to keep her in orbit, but moved about as wind and breathed lived without needing permission to interrupt all that was silent and under restraint. I was told that a woman cannot truly be herself, that is, if herself is not light enough, dark enough, if her hair be no Rapunzel replica, or it be too underground railroad for those cotton-acting men to stomach. I was told that my body is neither belonging to me nor its beauty innate, but that I am not gorgeous unless told by another woman's son to be so. When did the mouths of men whose image we are not made in begin to damage us so silently? Maybe it was when we began believing those voices that have no deity in it. I was told to not submit, to not be meek, that that type of behavior was only for women who treated their voice like a secret. I was told not to be a secret, but to be a siren, to be as machete as I can in honor of my opinions at the expense of respect. While some men may believe to have liberty over a woman's body, 
how they destroy as only depravity could predict. We have equally learned to tear and rip and undo dignity with mere sentence or squit. It's called strong by society. They tell us that that's what a backbone looks like. But beautiful is the spine that remembers where it came from, that does not let its knowing of self be determined by every wind of doctrine and dust but God himself. We must unlearn these deep misunderstandings that compose themselves as empowerment, as freedom. Liberation has never come by way of unbelief. Eve did not obtain life by finding beauty in lies, but only a naked body in the husband who forgot her first name. We women must be smarter, must be wiser, must be bent on loving truth, no matter how contradictory it is to a dying culture. I tell you, a woman is no fool unless she chooses to be. If you ask me what is a woman, I will tell you that she is a bone made alive, with distinctions that set her apart, as does a firefly and a newborn. A woman is not a man. Her calling is not a synonym of inferiority. Her distinctions are not the child of a patriarchy. They come from a creative God. You can see his fingerprints in your hips. The whistling wind of his mind when your body became home to another name that called you mommy with all the gladness that you forgot could exist. A woman submits to her God, her husband, her church. She is no weak-willed or brittle-backed woman, but only as strong as humility and faith may identify her to be. They say, submission sounds like servant. They say, that sounds like something to rebel against. I say, ain't it funny how being a servant is repulsive to everyone but God? And we wonder why we can't recognize his face. As my wife said, they're not going to remember anything else. Thank you. I said you had to recognize with two things, not only what is a woman, but what is the calling of a husband. And I'm not here to give you 10 things that show your true colors as a real husband. I'm here to give you a vibe, a feel. And I'll set it up briefly this way from a moment that you probably don't remember from Shadowlands. You know that story. C.S. Lewis befriends this woman by correspondence named Joy. They both have a common love for literature. She, moves to, she comes to England with her boys to meet him. She wants to stay in England, but her visa runs out. She wants to stay to protect herself from an abusive husband back home. And C.S. Lewis goes to the kindness of saying, I'll enter into a civil union with you in order for you to stay here. Not a marriage by love, but a marriage of civil proclamation only. And then Joy contracts cancer, and it doesn't look good. And in this moment, C.S. Lewis is realizing that that which began in a civil union has now changed in his heart. I mean, it's not as if... It's not as if what, Harry? Well, she's your friend, of course. But, well, she's not family. Not my wife. No, of course not. Of course not. It's impossible. It's unthinkable. How could Joy be my wife? 
I'd have to love her, wouldn't I? I'd have to care more for her than for anyone else in this world. I'd have to be suffering the torments of the damned. The prospect of losing her. I'm sorry, Jack. I didn't know. Nor did I, Harry. come to realize that that which began as a friendship has now matured into something that can only be considered love. And in that moment, my friends, he is demonstrating for us precisely what the gospel is. Of Jesus for his bride entering into vulnerability and to enter into her own suffering. But rather than her suffer for him, he suffers for her. He drinks the suffering to the dregs and realize he must submit to the torments of the damned in order to love her as she needs. That is the picture of the gospel, but that picture maps upon marriage itself. And husbands, this is what it means to be married and what we sign up for when we do that. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That is the goal of marriage. It is to love her as she needs. It is, as Anne put it, to seek her good. To seek her good. And if we automatically say it's about seeking her good, then we also we have to ask the question, what is the highest good? What is the deepest good? The deepest good is this, her delight in God. It's greater than just seeking her happiness. That's part of it. But you can be a happy fool. You can be a happy danger. A husband seeks her good by seeking foremost her delight in God. And that doesn't mean, okay, i got to go light candles while she prays. I mean, that, that can be part of it. it. It may mean just simply borrowing the line from the Incredibles, Bob, it's time to engage. Help me out here. To seek her good is what it means to love her. You're, Jesus is the pattern. Husbands are not the savior of their wives. Uh, they are not the Lord of their wives. Uh, they are not damsels in distress. But their good is to be sought, and their highest good, and all other manner of goods too. That's the goal. Earlier this week, we, a bunch of staff, we went to hear Preston Sprinkle up at Montreat, talked about transgender issues. It was really helpful stuff. But one of the people he's interviewed recently is a New Testament theologian by the name of Michelle Lee Barnwell, who studied the use of the metaphor of body and, and head and body in ancient antiquity. A lot of other sources other than Paul used it too. But in every instance, it is the body who sacrifices for the head. Because, you know, a human body, my hand can, I can be without my hand. If the head dies, we all go, right? Um, and that's how Rome would conceive of it. The body does everything and sacrifices itself for the sake of the head. Jesus, in this situation, as Paul's putting it, turns that on its head, to borrow our line. Here's the head dying for the good of the body. That's the goal. And that goal has a logic. One of the worst things besides death that has come out of the pandemic is an increase in the rise of people who feel like the only way they can know that they're alive is if they hurt themselves. It's, it's the line from the Nine Inch Nails song that Johnny Cash immortalized. 
I cut myself today to know that I can still feel. It's real. It's tragic. It's terrible. And it's bizarre, right? Husbands, the logic behind the goal of love is if neglect is part of your world, it is as bizarre and tragic as self-harm. It has no place. It makes no sense. It is not good. And that's why I want to kind of land this plane near the airfield with a moment from The Notebook. Yeah, if you know that story, James Garner plays the husband of a woman suffering from dementia. And in one of these last scenes, you kind of see that logic. Hi, sweetheart. I'm sorry I haven't been able to be here to read to you. I didn't know what to do. I was afraid you were never coming back. I'll always come back. What's going to happen when I can't remember anything anymore? What will you do? I'll be here. I'll never leave you. That story is all about reminding her of the story that she's in and at the same time reminding himself of the story that he is in in their marriage. For him to neglect that would be bizarre and harmful to all of them. Love has that logic. Caitlin Flanagan is a writer for The Atlantic. She's had stage four cancer for 20 years. She writes a ton, and I don't agree with everything that she writes, but everything that she writes is brilliant. I commend her to you. Anybody ready, Caitlin Flanagan? About six months ago, she just all of a sudden, what prompted it, uh, she tweeted this. Uh, Take it easy on yourself. If you're in a heterosexual relationship, the man wants to be respected and the woman wants to be loved. Not that you have to live that way, but, but that's the undercurrent. That's the current. I'm pretty sure that uh, her thinking is informed by Ephesians 5 as much as my thinking is informed by Barney the Dinosaur. Who? If she ever showed up, ladies, at the 1030 Bible study on Thursday morning, she'd probably bring the Chardonnay and um, kick off her shoes and say, all right, girls, give me the dirt. But she has that intuition. And you know how Twitter reacts. What? Women never need respect. Men never need love. Oh, for the love of chips and salt, shut up. No, that's not what she meant. But in the elliptical orbit, 
the place of adoration and admiration are real. And we have to respect that nature in order to understand ourselves and each other. That's why I'll end with this on something that Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote from prison to a friend of his who was engaged to be married. And he said this, In your love you see only your two selves in the world, but in marriage you're a link in the chain of the generations which God causes to come and to pass away to his glory and calls into his kingdom. In your love you see only the heaven of your own happiness, but in a marriage you're placed at a post of responsibility toward the world and mankind. Your love is your own private possession, but marriage is more than something personal. It's a status, an office. It's not your love that sustains the marriage, but from now on the marriage that sustains your love. That's the story that holds you up and propels you forward and reminds you of your place and shows forth goodness. If you ever have a chance to go dancing at a honky-tonk, I recommend Southern Junction in Rockwell, Texas. I hope you'll watch next time because on the dance floor, it's not choreographed, it's just the beat. And he's leading, but the leading is very subtle and it is never to the obscuring of her beauty or her glory. And that, I think, is a wonderful picture of what marriage is. So, beloved, I commend you to it, as Homer did. There is nothing more admirable than when two people who see eye to eye keep house as man and wife, confounding their enemies and delighting their friends. Let's pray. I ask that you would bless your church. I ask that you would fill us with your spirit to humble us, not to clutch, demand, not to withhold, but that you would fill us with your spirit to know what is good and true and loving and deferent and submissive and holy and loving, and that you would forgive us our sins, and that you would help us now to praise you in all things, that you would strengthen your church as a consequence. In Jesus' name, amen.